to the 2019 Browns Note Podcast, Episode 1, A New Hope. And yes, A New Hope, for just like Luke Skywalker escaping Tatooine to deliver a fatal shot, here we've got a walk-on quarterback from Lake Travis, Texas, flies in, stays on target, and blows the Death Star to smithereens. To cross-reference horrifically, my friends, ding-dong, the quarterback jersey is dead. The bottomless pit has finally been filled in. Ladies and gentlemen, it is dawn in Cleveland. Welcome back to the Browns Note Podcast, everyone. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from a rainy dog pound west in Orange County, California. You can find me on Twitter at FTBL Sickness. We'll be joined shortly by our friend Brendan Leister, who can be found at Brendan Leister on Twitter. Find the show at The Browns Note. Why are we back? Well, frankly, can't help ourselves. I mean, that's the shortest version. You go back to Hard Knocks, this is why it's been a while. I go back to those hard knock scenes and the two that stick out, the meeting room where Hugh goes about trying to tell everyone their business, even though a couple of those guys have more head coaching wins than Hugh will ever have. And then the bad habits clip. Rock bottom for me was the bad habits clip where Hugh is confessing to Tyrod Taylor, his brand new veteran starting quarterback. Whole team's got bad habits. Everybody. His words, not mine. And then Tyrod tells him how to deal with it, and you can tell Hugh doesn't even barely hear him. So... The whole thing was frustrated. It felt like a whole bunch of talent was about to be wasted, and the first few games certainly sort of bore that out. You know, the the Steelers game, the Browns should have won by 30 with all those turnovers. I went to the Monday night game that week. The Rams and Raiders up in Oakland had a blast. Started playing with that whole idea of my Rams thriving that you guys have seen me tweeting about. Week two, the Saints game. Browns should have had that one. Nope, couldn't get it. Week three, knew it was a big one. Thanks to Baker. They get that one, and it's a bit of a relief. And it was then, of course, that Baker began the 13-week process of giving me back my Cleveland Browns football. I know some of you feel similarly. It's a good deal. I actually got to go to his first start the next week, right? Attending the game at Oakland that the Browns should have won. Baker was a revelatory delight, but the team sucked around him. The refs sucked even worse. A lot of you complained about that too much, but it was true. And I left having basically given up on that team for the season. Not given up on the future because I knew Baker was legit. And frankly, Hugh rewarded me. It's not like it got a lot better from then on, right? But then week nine came and a loss to the Steelers. And at long, at long painful last. Suddenly, the end of the Hugh Jackson era was upon us, and we could begin to think positively about our Cleveland Browns football again. And it started to get better quickly, did it not? The Freddie Kitchens offense. The defense, of course, had its problems ravaged by injury, but there was no questioning how much better it got on offense to the degree that one Baker Mayfield broke records. More touchdown passes in a rookie season than Peyton Manning or Russell Wilson, and he did it in three fewer starts. My goodness. Wins started to stack up. Confidence started to brew in Cleveland. And by the time week 14 or 15 or whatever it was came around, the Denver game, my brother, the Broncos fan, flies us out in his own plane, my whole family, to watch my Browns beat his Broncos. And leaving that game was such a stark contrast to having left the Oakland game I can't even tell you, as stark as the W and the L, they reflected. I walked out of that game joyful with my 11-year-old son and my 70-year-old father, hooting and hollering with lots of fellow Browns fans. That's what it took. That's what it took. A quarterback 
and a little bit of an addition by subtraction. And now Freddie Kitchen and his me- kitchens, excuse me, Frederick, and his merry band of ball droppers will lead us into a new era of Cleveland Browns football. Frankly, I'm psyched. Let's do this. We'll be right back with Brendan Leister. Welcome in now, my friend, your friend, from the heart of Ohio, Mr. Brendan Leister. How you doing, buddy? Doing great, man. How about yourself? Well, we're back here again. I must be doing okay. I got my Browns beanie on. It is pouring outside in SoCal, so this is a perfect day to have a cup of coffee and chat football with you before these playoff games get started. And obviously, it's been a while, so let's let ourselves go here and have some fun with it. Um, let it, you know, there's plenty to talk about. Obviously, there's all the recent news, but I thought it would be fun to do sort of since we didn't really do, you know, our usual weekly episodes this year for any number of reasons. Um, you know, it would be fun to do just a quick, concise handful of thoughts about the season that's just passed. And so, I mean, let's just let's sort of start at the beginning. Um, you know, it started off ugly. I'm not going to have us walk through the entire process, obviously. It started off ugly, but hopeful, if that makes sense. There were those early games where, like against Pittsburgh, they had all the turnovers that they should have won, and then there was the Saints game, and then finally the the switch happens with Baker and things start to get a little better. And then, of course, I know you and I are sort of brothers in Hugh Jackson pain the past couple of years, and so when they finally pulled the trigger on that, um, to me it was at least – it started to become worth watching again. And then of course, once the offense started to get rolling, it was just borderline joyful to watch. Um, What, just from a big picture standpoint, as you look back on the season, I mean, obviously there's, there's the Baker takeover, which is a huge deal. There's all that, but what are the couple of things maybe trend wise that stick out for you in terms of the overall progress of the organization? Cause when last we left everybody, um, neither you or I were particularly optimistic about the 2018 season, and it was mostly due to the coaching situation. And then we saw this this season play out the way it did. Give me your sort of overarching thoughts. Well, I've been saying I think it was like three seasons. So the first season was Tyrod Taylor starting at quarterback. He had the whole offseason. It felt like Tyrod Taylor was the starting quarterback for a lot longer than he actually was. Um, you know, going into the season, they were – maintaining, oh, he's the starter, he's the starter, he's the starter. Mayfield never got any first-team team reps. Um, and then he only actually played two games in a quarter, and then he goes down, Mayfield comes in, season number two begins. And then we had ups and downs with Mayfield, with Hugh and Haley. Um, the Oakland game, you know, that was a game that they absolutely should have won. They had the better team. I know the officiating sucked, but still, it's a game they should have won going on the road, and I think that was – clearly an indictment of the coaching staff that they didn't have them ready to win that week and just blow out a team that was much worse than them on the road. Um, And then obviously it went downhill from really from the Jets game on, I would say, aside from they did beat Baltimore, I suppose, but still that was an ugly game. Uh, And then once Hugh got fired, Hugh and Haley got fired and the keys were handed to Greg Williams and Freddie Kitchens. That was when season three began and I think from there, we saw steady progress. I think the off, the defense got worse as the season went on. Injuries piled up. They didn't turn over the ball at that unsustainable rate that they did at the beginning of the season where they were just getting strips and picks right and left. Um, I think the defense really fell off and showed a lot of the um, a lot of the flaws with the personnel and also with the coaching. I think the attention to detail and those things, players didn't really consistently get better as the season went on on defense. But then on the offensive side of the ball, I think even from the Kansas city game on, we saw just a huge turnaround. They started putting up, I think they put up 26 points a game or so. I know the DVOA had the Browns. uh, That's a statistic by football outsiders had the Browns offense as the number two offense in the NFL uh, from the time that Freddie kitchens took over. So that marriage with Mayfield was just great. They got a ton out of Greg Robinson at left tackle. Brashad Perriman, a wide receiver. Those are two guys that they picked up that nobody really expected a ton out of. So that was great to see because typically we see Browns players fail in Cleveland, go on somewhere else, and then they turn into those 
promising players that are up and comers. So it's good to see that. And I hope that they keep those guys, for example. But I just thought that we really saw improvement as the season got on or went on. Um, penalties went down. The discipline improved. I think the special teams is as awful, atrocious as they were early in the season. It did get better as the season went on, even though they weren't still at the level they should have been. And then even the drop numbers, too, you could tell also. I mean, that declined severely. I know the Browns still finished with the second-highest drop percentage in the NFL at season's end, but that's just because at the beginning of the season, it was at an astronomical rate, and it went down as the season Thankfully, went on. Thankfully, so. that was also unsustainable. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I agree. So, yeah, I just think that those are some examples of things that got better as the season went on. And although the team does have some holes to fill, I think if you look at the roster, the depth chart overall, it's – it's pretty promising when you look at the frontline players. They definitely need depth. They have some holes to fill. But overall, I'm really excited moving forward, and I think they have a chance to do some pretty special things in the next uh, two to three years specifically. Yeah, things are things are looking up. Um, hopefully we aren't about to have anything fall out from beneath us, but it sure looks like they are going to roll with some continuity. Got Freddie Kitchens, just got named the head coach. We've seen the social media posts today with him signing the contract. So I feel confident that that is now official. Um, you mentioned how much better things got on offense. And I just, I did save a few tweets from people and I'll give them appropriate credit as I run through a few of these. And I may not do them all at once, but I've got a number of numbers here and I, you probably have some of the similar ones, but I'll just tell you my single favorite stat is the quarterback hit stat from weeks nine to 17. That's half the friggin' season. The Browns allowed Baker Mayfield to get hit, not sacked, hit, Nine times. In the words of Edward Rooney, nine times. Now, Baker Mayfield was touched nine times weeks 9 to 17. Let that sink. Let it, you know, roll around the old noodle for a while. It's ridiculous. The next best team was Indianapolis. They gave up 29 quarterback hits. It wasn't just good. It was unbelievable, maybe even unsustainable like some of these other numbers we've talked about. Unless, of course, it turns out that Baker Mayfield is just that good. We'll get back to that. Um, one of my favorite numbers, uh, there are a bunch of them here. Matt Barry tweeted this one out, and I'm sure you all know who Matthew Barry is. But the offense under Freddie Kitchens, all of these stats since week nine, led the NFL in yards per play at 6.86, tied for the lead league in yards per pass attempt, 8.72, fourth in yards per game, 395.1, fourth in passing yards per game, 285.9, 23.75 points per game was 14th. So the transition from yards to points has yet to fully form, but you got to like the direction things are going. If you talk, there, there's another one. Where's the one that I just freaked out about? Um, oh, I know where it is. Here we go. The Browns averaged 6.86 yards per play, weeks nine to 17. The 2,000 Rams, 6.98, are the only team since the 1970 merger of the AFL and NFL to average more than that over a full season. So between the quarterback hits number and that number, um, those would be the ones. That was tweeted out by at Paul Hembo, by the way, and I'm not going to even try to produce or uh, pronounce his slightly more difficult uh, last name fully. But the uh, the numbers are just ridiculous, man. It was It was number after number after number that tells you a couple of things. Number one, Freddie Kitchens may have some idea what he's doing. Number two, Baker Mayfield definitely knows what he's doing. And number three, that relationship worked a lot better than anything else we've seen on offense in a long time in Cleveland. Is it necessarily the best coach they could have hired for that? I don't know. But in terms of looking back at what we've seen for the past two decades, that stretch of football is as good as it's been offensively. And by, by as good as it's been, I don't mean just for us. You heard that number. That's the best number anybody would have averaged had the Browns averaged that over the course of a season other than the 2,000 Rams, the greatest show on turf. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and roll with that. So, yeah, that to me, those numbers to me screamed keep Freddie Kitchens. And when it came down to it, I, I, I suspect you and I feel similarly about this, but to me, when it came time to think about the coaching decision, it was, okay, well, you're either cleaning house or you're keeping Freddie Kitchens. It was one of those two things to me. And if you wanted to keep Freddie Kitchens, he needed to be head coach. And frankly, I, look, yep. we'll see what happens, but I'm pleased as punch that that's where it ended up, and I'm excited about 2019. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. There was no way that you should keep him on as OC going into next year with the way that he performed this year because if he does the same thing again next year, these teams are going after 
anybody that's been good on offense that's good at coaching quarterbacks, well, if Kitchens does it again next year, they're going to swipe him for the next head coach opening. So that would have just been stupid to allow him to get out of the building that way. And then you're constantly recycling offensive coordinators and doing all that. Look at Matt Ryan in Atlanta. How many offensive coordinators he's had in his career? You want to avoid that. Let me ask you a question because there's sort of a there's one side of that where people will go, well, you shouldn't be making your coaching decision based on the fear that Freddie Kitchens is going to get away. And I'm saying that to me isn't fear. That's I want that guy in my building. And I feel strongly enough about the way they performed on offense to think that guy ought to be interviewing for my head coaching position. So, look, once they got to that point, the interview was obvious. I have no problem with the concept that he might have so pleased them over the course of the year and that they might have seen enough in that guy in that short period of time and in an interview process, especially a guy you know. Man, and especially if you start to look around the league at things people have said previously about Freddie Kitchens when you weren't looking for things to be said about Freddie Kitchens, man, it's it's pretty encouraging stuff. So look, is it going to work out perfectly? Who the hell knows? That's not where we are. But look at some of these other hires and tell me you'd feel a lot more confident with them. Did you really want Mike McCarthy that bad? No. Uh, no, I, absolutely not. I agree with you 100%. Um, just excited that they got Kitchens, that they passed on McCarthy. I know that the details came out on that. It seemed like the mutual interest wasn't even really there. They were supposed to interview him, I think, at the beginning of last week, maybe, and then it kind of fell through. Um, it is interesting, like Stefanski, I know he was the finalist. I think going into the season, the report is that he was kind of on Dorsey's list of candidates for that position, and and it just played out that he was in the, you know, he was a finalist. He did a great job in his interview. I think that what happened was, you know, Kitchens interviewed after all those guys. So obviously they had to have a guy that did the best out of those first guys. And it's not surprising that Stefanski did that. He's an up and coming guy. He didn't really get to call the plays a ton in Minnesota. And I think that it's not even really fair to judge what he did in Minnesota at this point, because Zimmer seems to be so into what they do offensively that sometimes it can be so tough to judge where I think Freddie Kitchens had, they just gave him the offense and said, hey, just right. run with it, man. Do right. whatever the hell you want. That worked and, out and pretty well. <laughs> exactly. And now he can do that because he's the boss. So I think that's awesome. Um, and I really hope that they get an innovative offensive coordinator to go with him and not to call the plays for him, but to be in his headset on game day. Let them discuss everything that's going on on the field. I heard, um, you know, I went through all the all the big, big name candidates that the Browns had requested interviews with. And I, I listened to what they kind of I listened to press conferences and interviews with the media just to get a feel for all those guys and I know that um Sirianni I think it's Nick Sirianni he's the offensive coordinator for the Colts and he doesn't call plays you know he's a he's an up and coming guy he's probably a few years from actually being a real head coach candidate but I heard him say how even though he doesn't call the plays he's constantly in conversation with Frank Reich about what the defense is doing about what kind of adjustments they they need to make, what they need to be talking to the quarterback about. And it's just a constant conversation, especially when Andrew Luck's on the sideline about how can they get better drive to drive, what they can be more efficient at. And clearly collaborative teamwork. Exactly. And it's working in Indianapolis. It works in in all kinds, all kinds of places all over the NFL. I mean, the Rams do it too, but that's the kind of relationship you're looking for between the head coach and the OC in this situation. It's, it's also to take, take some pressure off the head coach during the week. So the offensive coordinator can focus on installing the offense with the head coach. It takes some pressure off him. He can also, you know, focus on making sure the special teams is doing all the stuff they need to do, that the defense is doing all the stuff they need to do. I mean, he is still the head coach, even though he's the play caller, it just, it allows him to take some stuff off his plate. And it's another really smart guy in the room that, um, maybe that guy will be a head coach in a few years, but it's still good to have him as long as you do have him. Cause there's no guarantee, um, you know, that you're going to lose him really quick. The offensive coordinator, obviously there's but, no um, guarantee that any coach is going to be in any place for right. very long. That's sort of the nature of the business. And so any good organization ought to be fostering good coaches forever and ever. Amen. Just like exactly. the player development program. It's if you're any good, you're going to lose your best coaches all the friggin' time. It's happened. Philly won the Super Bowl and lost everybody. You know, they didn't lose Jim Schwartz, but they lost everybody on offense. Um, and the same as, you know, the Rams are getting picked apart. The Rams are getting picked apart because they picked apart the Redskins. You know, that's the way this stuff mm-hmm. works. And, you know, you were talking about the relationships. And to me, that's that's the relationship between Kitchens and Mayfield was the thing that really had me thinking they ought to do this. And, and so, you know, 
John Costco, at John Costco 3, had the thread that I wanted to spend some alone time with, so I'm just going to read those off real quick. It was a couple days ago. Um, it says, in case you were wondering the massive improvement Freddie Kitchens made with the Browns offense, week 9 through 17, as you sort of alluded to, and I would suspect that DVOA and overall offensive grades for PFF tend to be at least similar. I could be wrong about that, but I know there's some efficiency involved in both concepts. Anyway, the Chiefs were the number one, Browns were number two. Situationally, Kitchens was great in a one-score game, first half, no two-minute drill, no red zone, early downs. Um, pass percentage. The Steelers number one, Chiefs number two, the Browns were number three. So they're not just pounding the ball into the middle of the of the line every time on first down. I mean, I think there are probably some still some things that you'll talk about, Brendan, that, that can be improved in that area, but that's encouraging to me, where they're not just doing <laughs> 1985 Bill Parcells crap on offense all the time. Um, no disrespect to Bill Parcells, who was a genius at the time. Or 2018 Seattle Seahawks. Right, right, right. Good point. Yeah, man. Expand on that. T tell the audience what you mean, because this is something that, that, frankly, I was stubborn to accept, and I'm sure there are plenty of audience members that might still be skeptical that we have entered a new era in football. Expand on what you mean by that. Well, there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of data scientists, and, you know, there's people that understand this stuff very deeply, and they're uh -oh. keeping track. Nerds. Like, <laughs> but they understand it at a very deep level, and they've convinced me of many things that I wasn't open to before. Um and I was skeptical of, and I've been convinced, but they do um, expected points added is one of the examples of that. And so they, they look at expected points added for every situation of a game. What's the right decision between run pass um, going forward on third, fourth down, or, or going forward on fourth down, I should say, uh, even as far as average depth of target, if the ball's getting thrown at a certain depth down the field, expected points added on those plays. So they look at all that data and um, what they've found for example, with the Seattle Seahawks, they I think they did they would run on first down, run on second down, and then pass on third down. I think they did that around 20 or 25 percent of the time this year, and it's just such an archaic way of going about your offense. These coaches talk about setting up third and manageable. Well, you look at uh, offensive coaches like Sean McVay, for example, the guys that are at the top of the field. It's clear that they believe in getting first down. Forget third. Getting, yeah, forget having a exactly. short third down. Skip third down altogether. Exactly. You get explosive plays down the field, chunk, chunk plays. So you're getting 15, 20, 25 yards in one play. You just throw the ball down the field. Heavy play action because you suck those linebackers up on play action, throw it behind them on these crossing route, post routes. You threaten the defense down the field. I mean, one of the biggest things you can take advantage of in modern football also is the pass interference. Defensive pass interference is like a cheat code. You can underthrow a deep ball and get a 65-yard gain out of it if the defensive back doesn't play the ball well in the air and, and tackles your wide receiver. That happens every every game that you watch almost. You're going to see a play like that where it flips the field for the offense. So pushing the ball down the field is ex extremely valuable. And um, just what we're talking about with Seattle is just they were very archaic this year. They, they should definitely be looking for a different offensive coordinator because they have one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And another that might be another Carroll thing, though. Let's let's be real about the interaction. Carroll wants them both. to pound the ball. It's both. I agree. But let's yeah. make no mistake. Philosophically, Pete Carroll's that guy. Yeah, I agree. He's a typical defensive coach. He thinks he still has Marshawn Lynch. Right. And, and still, even if you have him, you'd be better off throwing more often and supplementing that pass game with the run game in situational football. So, well, and, so and to make that point, to make that point, that uh, another one of those tweets in the Costco thread is on second and long, you know, in the early, the first three quarters of the game, one score games, not in the red zone. But look at these pass numbers. When the Browns were in second and long, the Browns are among the top throwing percentage teams in the league. The Saints were at 76%. The Steelers were at 75.6. The Browns are at 75. And the Rams are at 72.4. Those are all offenses that at least I think of as explosive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just tweeted something out actually about a guy that I want the Browns to hopefully hire as their offensive coordinator if he's open to it is uh, Todd Munkin from Tampa Bay. He was the offensive coordinator last year. He called every game except for, I believe, the Washington game. But um, this is a stat from the PFF forecast. Um, Eric Eager and George 
I can't, it's PFF George on Twitter. I don't remember how to pronounce his last name, but um, a quote by them is Todd Munkin and the Tampa Bay offense made the right EPA based decision on pass run 70% of the time on second downs to lead the NFL in 2018. So that was an offense that was pushing the ball down the field consistently. They were one of the most explosive offense in the NFL. And actually Ryan Fitzpatrick, if you look at the two first, first two games of the season, he broke the record for, pro football focus passing or uh, for pro football focus quarterback grade. So, you know, we grade every snap of every game at PFF. He broke the record for grade in those two games in that offense, uh, constantly pushing the ball down the field, running to supplement the pass game rather than running first, which, you know, again, you're trying to get first downs. You're trying to get explosive plays. The situations where running the ball is better would be second and short. So like second and two, second and one, you can run the ball in those situations because more often than not, you should be able to pick up those yards. You want to go spread to run though. You don't want to condense the formation down with heavy personnel groups because then it brings more defenders into the box. That's more guys that you have to block. Um, also on the goal line, uh, you're more likely to score a touchdown. If you run the ball again, spreading the field out to run the ball can go better than passing or then going tight and bringing everybody into the box. Cause it's just so tough to block so many players. And then also two point conversions, which I think this is something that Freddie kitchens can actually learn from and improve on is um, in one of those last games of the season, there was a game where he went for two, three or four times. I, believe, I think three times in that game, they went for a two point conversion. He passed all three times. Um, if you look at two point conversion percentage over time, uh, running the ball is actually the higher percentage play in those situations. So th I think that's something that he could just just learn from. Maybe Paul DePodesta's staff is going to, you know, hand him an analytics sheet maybe on decision-making in those situations. And who knows if he'll be open-minded about it. I know that all this stuff sounds really nerdy, but if you go by well, the numbers and you can, and, you can and understand you can understand where a coach who has Baker Mayfield or a great quarterback or whoever you might view as a great quarterback, um, they might be inclined to – put it in that guy's hands in those situations I mean yeah that's it's not even necessarily old school thinking so much as mm -hmm. feel right <laughs> right yeah and also attacking a weak spot on the defense it, it, you also have right. to take advantage take into account a ton of different aspects of it but all I'm saying is in those situations though running is more valuable in passing in those examples of situations but more often than not if you're going you know first and ten second and long even probably, I mean, second medium, it might be more like 50-50. But in those longer situations down in distances, you probably shouldn't be running the ball because you're probably only going to get the odds are going to say three to four yards on a good solid play. Obviously, there are those cases where you get seven or eight yards, but still you're setting up third and short. Why not go for the first down on each of the two plays on second and long and third and long if you're going to throw an incompletion rather than just running the ball for a few yards on second down and and setting up third and short and then throwing an incompletion and then you punt because everybody loves to punt in the NFL. That's like their favorite thing to do. That's an, that's a whole nother conversation, how often yeah. teams should be going for it on fourth down. And I think Greg Williams, honestly, he did probably a better job of that than a lot of coaches as oh, far I, as going I liked for how aggressive being he aggressive. Was. Yeah, so I hopefully like Freddie too. Kitchens keeps that up. You know, this is a good time, I think, to bring up one of the other topics that's come up a lot because we've got all this coaching shifting happening, and uh, obviously with Freddie Kitchens taking over, there were going to be a number of changes. One of the ones that initially some Browns fans were really concerned about was the Bob Wiley thing. I mean, look, for me, the Wiley love has more to do with him looking like a cross between Santa Claus and a walrus <laughs> than it does anything else. Like, I know we all loved his Hut Hut remix and all that, but at the end of the day... Um, let's not forget what the game looked like last year and for the first half of this year. Um, and frankly, in light of what we're hearing about what they're thinking about doing at that position, I'm, I'm kind of encouraged. Tell me, tell me your thoughts about the Wiley departure, and then it looks like they're going to interview or they have interviewed or they're hoping to hire. Well, I'm not really sure exactly where we stand on it, but the, the longtime uh, Green Bay Packers offensive line coach, and my view of them is they have one of the best offensive line programs in the game. Yeah, so my take on Bob Wiley is that I think he's clearly super smart dude, been around the game a long time, highly respected in the offensive line community, and he's had a great career. But I think at this point, the game has probably passed him by in some aspects. Um, 
we all listen to him question stretching on <laughs> yes fitness and conditioning were not his <laughs> not his strong suit yeah. yeah going on the beaches of normandy they weren't stretching and all that but uh but yeah so i think it's clear that if you look at the browns offensive line early in the season when when they weren't doing a ton to help them i think they struggled majorly um well, so he may not. I'm sorry to butt in on you, but I just what the hell happened? Because it was ugly for the first half of the year, and understand part of that is Baker getting comfortable and all that. But there's no way around the gig- the gigantic leap in efficiency and pass protection at Week Nine when they made some changes. It was obviously a scheme thing with Freddie, and it was obviously a personnel thing with Greg Robinson. So th- those two things were a big deal. Can you sort of? quantify that for us from your perspective well I think Desmond Harrison was definitely a huge liability I know that people were optimistic about him because of some of the good plays that he showed and yeah you can be optimistic about him but he is an undrafted free agent tackle under undersized and clearly his head was spinning he he had some catastrophic plays a few times a game And, and at tackle if you get beat like that three times a game that's that's a bad game. You know, that, at that position, you just need to be solid, consistent, play in, play out. And I think that was more of what Greg, Greg Robinson brought to the table. Um, I don't think Haley and Hugh did a great job of helping those guys out. I also think that clearly the, the play design and getting Mayfield in a position where he was comfortable enough to get the ball out early in the down and help those guys out, I think that was clearly lacking. He was holding the ball way too much, and Tyrod Taylor was as well when he was playing. Um but yeah, we saw a lot of max protection. We saw a lot more of chipping with the backs and the tight ends before they got into routes and all that stuff helped uh, once Freddie Kitchens took over and that was a big part of it. I think Mayfield got so much more comfortable too, just with the, the coaching change. I'm sure that he got caught in, caught with some of that drama between Hugh and Haley that was going on and his head may have been spinning sometimes as far as one guy tells him this, another guy tells him this, another guy tells him this. I mean, that's tough to play confident on Sunday when you're hearing that stuff. Um, I think it's clearly streamlined the process, just giving Freddie the keys and letting him do what he wanted to do. Um, but yeah, I think they did just just such a great job of scheme. Uh, another example of, I think someone that really underperformed was Chris Hubbard. He was a solid offensive lineman for the Steelers when he had arguably the best offensive line coach in the NFL and Mike Munchak. And then he comes to Cleveland and he's with Bob Wiley and, and Todd Haley he followed him. And, uh, that guy, he played terrible early in the season. And as the season got on and they, they gave him some help as you should with any player that struggled and probably lost some confidence. I thought he started to play a lot better, you know, him getting beat three or four or five times a game turned into getting beat once or twice Mayfield being able to get the ball before he got hit or making that defender miss. So, I think those are all just things that can somewhat be looked at as indictments of Wiley in a way, but, but by the end of the season, indictments the of everybody line. on offense right. right up until week nine, because the, the amount of Definitely. improvement is revealing. That's all there is yeah. to it. Like if it, it's hard to believe that it's possible for an NFL offense to switch it on like that, after eight weeks of football, to me. And the only thing to attribute that to, yeah, I'm sure Freddie's great, I, all that, but whatever was going on before was some bullshit. Yep, exactly. And I've got um, got a great article by Justice Mosqueda from uh, Optimum Scouting, and he, he did a fantastic job of going through all the offensive line coaches in the NFL and looking at their sack value, which he... I have the link. I'll tweet it out again after we post this podcast, but it talks, or if you want to get the article, you can just at me on Twitter at Brendan Leister, but he looked at sack value and then he used a formula to kind of equate that. And Look then at CFL you in the, in the months since we've last podcast, becoming an old pro at this, just sliding the Twitter handle into your content. Look <laughs> at you, dude. Proud of you. Used T- TFL value. He, so he quantified that. And then he looked at all the offensive line coaches in the NFL. So there was 34 guys, I think, that have kind of bounced around to different jobs that have been more prominent figures in the offensive line community in the NFL. And he found that Bob Wiley is actually 27th in this category. So uh, he gave him a minus 4.1 value in sack value, minus 12.7 value when it came to TFL value, and then minus 16.8 in total. 
So that's not nearly as bad as the worst guy, but still 27 out of 34 guys is pretty bad. Where's the Green Bay guy? The Green Bay guy is 14th. So in sack value, he's minus 19.4, which I think some of that probably could be attributed to Rodgers holding the ball. We all know that he loves to hold onto the ball, try to create, um, do more than sometimes the play should, uh, do more than sometimes he should probably be expected within the route progression, I would say. So sometimes he probably leads to some sacks that shouldn't be happening. But when it came to TFL value, he was 34, he had a 34.3 value, which looks really dang good, very close to top five on this list. So overall, he was at 14.9. So not nearly the minus 16.8 that Bob yeah. Wiley had. Yeah. So I think I think it's just it's a great um, this is a great tool because it looks at just quantifying how the offensive lines have played. And if you look at the the total, I think around the league, obviously some guys are more more talented than others when it comes to these offensive lines. But I think on the whole, looking at who consistently has a great offensive line versus who consistently doesn't is extremely valuable. And the Browns need to be going after someone that's in that top upper echelon, at least the upper third of the league, if they're going to have a good offensive line for the long term. Yeah, I think, to me, the offensive line coach after the coordinators is probably the biggest one. I mean, I think uh, there's just so much. That's that's the one position on the field where it, to me, is almost like its own entire sport within the sport because – those five guys need to be coordinated like a basketball team. It takes time to gel. Chemistry is a real thing. Communication is a real thing. And I, I to me, that was the most impressive thing about that quarterback hits number is Greg, Greg Robinson stepping in, and suddenly it looks like a well-coordinated offensive line. Uh, and I mean suddenly. So – that, that was really encouraging, even, even if it's not Greg Robinson, although I would expect them to, to do their darndest to keep him extended. Um, you know, I, I have full confidence that they're going to be able to, to get that thing rolling. Um, as you look at the offense in the 2019, and we'll switch over to the defense in just a moment, but just it, it feels to me, and I know you've tweeted as much, that the needs aren't as vast on the offensive side of the ball as they are on the defensive side of the ball, which a year down the line sounds frigging remarkable, right? I mean, we didn't think they had much of an offense at all, or at least a lot of people didn't. Um, but enter Nick Chubb, enter Baker Mayfield, and things look pretty good all of a sudden. Um, and by the way, sidebar, do any of you idiots still want Saquon Barkley at number one? <laughs> If so, please press stop and unsubscribe on this podcast, or we are going to torment you for the next several months. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. In fact, go to five stars and put that thing on there because we told you not to do that in the first place. Um, when you look at the offense, what do you? If there were one or two things you were going to address via free agency or the draft, what are they? I think finding another tackle just to compete a depth player that the offensive line coach can develop. Hopefully over time, you can find a guy that maybe can compete with Greg Robinson or Chris Hubbard, but I'd like to keep the starting five together for now. And then otherwise I think wide receiver, I think another explosive player, a wide receiver that can run great routes, win at every level of the field. Um, I think those are just really important things. Um, Ability to be explosive after the catch, I think is a huge thing with Mayfield because he's so accurate. And I think there were times where you know, they had some plays here and there where they were great after the catch. But I think on the whole, they could definitely use another guy that can do that um, just to complement what they already have. Because I think they have four good NFL receivers on the roster already. And we saw the group was very solid. So I wouldn't be upset either way if they added a, you know, they don't have to spend necessarily big as far as draft capital or in free agency or or whatnot on either of those two positions. And then I know people have mentioned tight end. Um, I personally, I'm satisfied with the group, but I get it. If I you want to find another player. I am add. too, but I was going to mention the position just because it's being said, and I'll have to study it because I don't really know, but apparently this class is stacked with tight ends. And yeah. look, great. Okay, if there's one that you're dying to, not dying to have, but if there's one that you love and he happens to be there at a spot that you feel like it's a real value, do it. Fine. Right. I don't, I don't have any problem with that. Let's go get some weapons. But by and large, I felt like, I mean, I, I guess I'd sure love to, to know what the problem with DeValve is. 
Awfully, I think he was hurt. Awfully talented. Well, he's always hurt, yeah. right? That's the problem. Yeah, that's that is that, the problem. I think you, yeah. you can't be any good if you're always hurt. That's just exactly. I mean, so if they've run out of patience with that, I won't be stunned. I suppose is is mm-hmm. the way I feel about it, especially since he's not anybody's guy in this building anymore. <laughs> so, um, well, I mean, maybe Barry or and all Barry. those guys, but yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, by and large, though, I'm with you. I think the position is at least sufficient for now. So now it's more a matter of are you going to improve it by way of value, and 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 if so, great. Let's flip over to defense because I think most of us are actually, and this is, again, yet another unsettlingly weird thing to say, but most of us feel pretty good about where the offense is headed. Uh, some a little more panicky about the tackle position than others or the wide receiver position than others. I personally am with you. I think, look, I'm, I'm sure as hell not letting Perriman get away. I, I'm I'm going to keep doing my best to keep Callaway's nose clean and him developing. Higgins is an NFL really solid piece. Um, you know, they've got stuff they're working with here. Um, and, and Landry is who Landry is, and I'm not yet at the position where I mind having him out there on the field. I, I would grant that some of the efficiency and, what, and dyna- dynamicism numbers – aren't really complimentary, but I'll I'll just straight up, I think there's a little more to it than that. And um, at least for the moment, he feels to me like one of those glue kind of guys. I don't know what happened in Miami, but his teammates here seem to like him. So um, I, when I look at the defense, I am, I, I feel like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because there are things I loved about it. Obviously when you turn the ball over five times week one, um, the number is going to look unsustainably good the rest of the season. But they did turn the ball over consistently. I think that's the best way to put it. They sacked the quarterback at a good rate. I still think pass rush was insufficient from a, if we're going to be a really good defensive team, you need to increase your pass rush. Now, here's what I see as I looked at that team. As you said, injuries over the course of the year really depleted the defense, and that became a huge problem. But obviously, Miles is a monster. Ogba is still not a great pass rusher, but he's a very useful player. Um, Jannard Avery can pass rush, and I want him to do more of it. Um, Larry Ogunjobi in the middle, there's, I can see that both ways. You can probably improve upon him as a pass rusher, but he's not killing you, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have enough depth. So this, to me, is where I'm pouring resources this offseason because – your offense is good enough to win every game you're in now. So th- the primary offseason objective for me is to turn a promising defense into a face-eating defense. How do we do it? Well, first of all, three technique is a huge need. I was looking at the numbers this morning, and if you go by pro football focus grades, um, Trevon Coley was the second worst defensive lineman in the lineman in the entire NFL this year 118th out of 119 eligible defensive tackles awful in the run game awful as a rusher brought very little I think he had two sacks and seven hurries for the entire season on around 500 or 600 snaps I think 600 well, which is some why snaps. that's terrible which is why all those other guys had so damn many snaps and I mean presumably they knew that that's what he was right yeah so then what they had to do was they moved Ogba inside a lot which I actually I like it in theory, but, but Ogba coming off that injury. I mean, if you look at his, for example, his grades, and I think also just watching, I think it lines up with, I think all of this is going to line up with what we saw on Sundays. Honestly, I, I fully believe that, but with Ogba, he just disappears a ton unless he bats down a ball here and there. And he gets that TFL once in a while in the run game, he disappears constantly. He very rarely makes an impact as a rusher. And that shows out. If you look at his pass rush grades, um, and then in the run game also, he, he was very up and down. And that was whether he was playing three technique or on the edge. You know, he played a lot of both. He actually played inside a lot more than people realized. They would move him inside, and then they would play Avery on the edge, which is good. But I think the thing with Avery is he's a pass rush specialist. I don't think he's great in the run game. I don't know if he'll ever be great in the run game. He's probably never going to be an every down defensive end or edge rusher. I, I don't think that's realistic for him. And he's not a cover player. 
But as a pass rush specialist that you bring in on third down and passing situations, you absolutely want that guy on the field just wreaking havoc on stunts and twists and rushing the edge. I Felt mean, he, like he's a, a real steal as a fifth rounder, right? Absolutely, yes. That's a very valuable player. I'm not slighting him by calling him not a not a per se starting player. It's just that he just has a role that he fills, and and that's good. That's what they they need to use. They need to use him that way. Um, with Ogan Joby. Uh, I was looking at his profile today, and he played 930 snaps this year. That led all defensive linemen, and it really showed up if you look at his grades because early in the season he he had some really dominant games. Well, and he and tore the, the he he tore something. He or you know he had I forget if it's the pec or the bicep. He had a pretty serious injury at some juncture. <laughs> yeah, and he played more snaps than anybody. Aaron Donald was second, and I think it it wasn't even close between those two. Were kind of close. And then the third guy was like way down the list, like 80 snaps below them out of all the defensive linemen in the league. So Ogan Joby, he was just, he played way too much. He was on the field way too much. And if you look at like his first year grades where he played 300 snaps versus his second year grades where he played 900, it wasn't even close just on the season. He, he dropped off significantly, I think around week seven or eight. And from there on out, he was much less efficient where early in the season, he was getting a ton of sacks, hits, See. Uh, pressures. D-line, D-line is where I'm pouring resources. I know everybody's worried, not everybody, but I know some people have a real concern about the linebackers. I, I really don't. I mean, I'm sure you can improve upon one or two of them, and, and you always can. Oh, you can. Yeah. yeah well, we'll get to that. But when I, yeah. when I think about what I most want out of the offseason defensively, it's, it's this. I want the teams that I think are best at defense always have a heavily fortified defensive line, meaning there is a constant rotation of guys, and the second or third guy even at a position is capable of screwing up an offense. That is how you win championships. you still got to have the quarterback. I'm not saying anything else, but the other way to get there is to have constant destruction on your defensive line, and the only way to have that is to be super deep and super – talented at those positions that has to be a focus and I felt like I feel like they're half a unit there they've got some really good players and they they just need more depth and that doesn't mean non-starters you can get some really talented dudes who might not get on the field the first snap on this team because Miles Garrett is in front of them or because whatever that's what you want those New York Giants teams with Eli Manning to me the thing that sticks out isn't the Eli Manning throws it's the constant rotation of pass rushers both internal and out guys at tackle and at end that really back in the day they had three or four guys at end they had three really good tackles that they just rotated constantly it's just fresh legs and fresh bodies and they never stop coming at you and that to me is that's what I'm looking for from the offseason is an, an attack at that approach. Yep. And then just for another guy that played a ton, Miles Garrett, you know, we all know that he's a stud, great player. He dropped in coverage too much. He was in coverage 34 snaps this yeah, year. God I'd damn love it, for Greg. That, yeah, I'd love for that number to go down. But he played 1,013 total snaps this season, and that was uh, 13 behind J.J. Watt, who led all edge rushers. And then it was um, nine behind D. Ford, who was second. So, yeah, he played the third most snap snaps among, amongst edge rushers. I know in the middle of the season, he was, like, way ahead of everybody. And then as the season went on, he, he was on the field a lot less. I remember them using their backups um, significantly more. Uh, the guy, uh, Zettel, I thought Zettel was an okay player. He might be a piece. That I can really be, liked him. His energy yeah, was good. He anyway. well. He's a motor guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he kind of is, yeah. yeah. But he, he did a good job in some situations as a rusher. I mean, I'm sure you could upgrade on him. Um, and they should look let, to. Let me ask you, in retrospect, wouldn't you have rather kept Carl Nassid for the season? Yeah. Yeah. You, it's no question. You know, at the time, I I didn't care much. I thought Nassib always was kind of a – I don't know if it made it, it that was much always, of a difference, but he, no, was, he was impactful he was an enough in Tampa Bay. that, And he certainly yeah. was in the Tampa Bay game against Cleveland. I, I've, I always liked Nassib just because he was a weirdo and, and definitely a motor guy, and those guys cracked me up, but – um, I, I know he I mean, wasn't I a special player, Chad but Thomas. that's, oh, yeah, well, can't win that's them all. And then there were some other guys that picked up on waivers at the end of uh, preseason that, 
Um, I remember Greg saying the reason that they had defensive linemen playing so much, so many snaps was because those guys behind them that they picked up at the end of preseason, they weren't ready to play. They didn't know the calls and stuff, so they weren't ready to play for a few weeks. Yeah, I questioned the process there. Right, exactly. You need to get those guys ready to play as soon as possible, or if you can't... I mean, it's not like it was a secret when the season starts. Everybody has the schedule ahead of time. Right, and if it's so complicated that... If if your con if your defense is so complicated that defensive linemen can't even learn how to run it in a few weeks, then uh, yeah, you should again, either though, keep it. Again, though, who knows? I go back to the offense and think they were dicking around with left tackle at the last minute and throwing in a UDFA to start a left tackle when they didn't even play him there. It's like I, all kinds of managerial nonsense going coaching. on. Coaching. Yeah. Coaching. Mm. And now we see how it will go on a going forward basis. But on defense, we know, or at least we think we know, it's going to be Steve Wilkes, former one-year head coach of the Arizona Cardinals. Before that, he was the defensive coordinator for, I believe, only the one season in Carolina. And then prior to that, I believe his background is mostly defensive backfield. But I, uh, I, I got to admit, I don't have a great handle on Wilkes yet. I know you have at least some thoughts on that. Tell us, uh, tell us what you know about Steve Wilkes. Um, so what I know about Steve Wilkes is, in Carolina two years ago, he he had a very good linebacker group. He had Thomas Davis, Luke Keekley, and Shaq Thompson. And then in the defensive backfield, he had a lot of very average players where if I would say their names, you'd probably be like, wow, who's that? <laughs> so anyway, so he played three linebackers more than anybody else in the NFL that year. And I think it was him and Greg Williams were very close that season. Um, so you could look at that and be like, oh, that's very archaic. They should be playing more sub packages. And that was what I said initially. I was like, well, in modern football where people are throwing the ball all over the yard, they've got three wide Shaq receivers Thompson's on the field. just a big safety anyway. Yeah, you're right. But still, in the NFL, he is technically a linebacker. But yeah. So anyway, when I saw that, I was, I was discouraged. But then I looked at um, more of his personnel usage last year with the Cardinals. And what I found was that he actually adapts to what he has. So... With the Cardinals, he had um, a very subpar linebacker group and a lot more talented DBs. So what he did was he played sub-packages 90% of the time last year. So he had a lot more speed on the field. So that's a huge contrast and shows that he will adjust to his personnel. I know people do have questions about how he used Patrick Peterson, um, how he was unable to use Dion Buchanan, as well as, I think, Hassan Reddick. Those are all recent early picks, talented guys. I don't have as much information and data when it comes to that stuff specifically. So those are some concerns going into this year, hopefully with better personnel and more reliable players, he can, you know, have a lot more success as a team. I know one thing is they were, well, hopefully he won't be fired him. in a year. That's my biggest thing is look, you're still building a program here and on defense, you're, you're now basically starting over, right? Not personnel wise, but from a system standpoint, you're probably basically starting over. And so, um, to me, the fair analysis is from here forward. Yeah. So, um, so we played sub packages 90% of the time. Um, the linebacker information that I said, it kind of shows out when you look at the, um, average depth of target. So it was third lowest in the NFL last year. So teams were basically just throwing short against the Cardinals and picking them apart. So they were attacking the, the short. They were also kicking their ass generally. <laughs> yes. And that's another thing they were, um, they had the worst offense in the NFL by far, and they were consistently behind in games. So that means that the opposition is going to be running the ball on you. That shows out with the numbers too. They were, they faced the th third low, third fewest attempts in the NFL last year as far as passing attempts. So teams were typically just getting leads on them, and then they would run the ball to try to finish the game out. Um, I know that uh, they lost like Tyron Matthew. They lost. Tremont Williams, who is still playing, I guess, some decent football, and, and they lost Tyvon Branch as well. So their secondary went from grading at uh, a, high, a higher rate to more of an average rate this past year. But again, it's a lot of personnel-based stuff. I know that um, he had the – so he had the third highest blitz percentage in the NFL this season at 45%. Um, the reason for that is they didn't have a lot of good pass rushers on the roster – um, I know that they had Chandler Jones, but even with him this year, I think he had more of a down year, even though he did have 12 sacks, his pass rush grade through pro football focus was not high. So he wasn't consistently defeating blocks, getting into the backfield, making explosive plays. He was getting more cleanup sacks, unblocked sacks. Um, 
and the defensive line, all those players were pretty poor. Uh, when you look at Greg Williams and what he did in Cleveland coverage-wise, uh, Greg ran a lot more cover one, cover two, and cover three. So more when they were in single high, they would run cover one and cover three. They did a lot of that with a really deep safety. You know, he calls it the angel. And then they would run a lot of Tampa two with Schobert dropping to the deep middle. They would have the safeties really deep. Um, whereas with Wilkes, he, he's a very heavy cover three and cover four team. Uh, I haven't really got into the film study so much, but I'm really hopeful that he does more pattern matching, which um, it's it's zone defense, but you're you have rules and the defenders match the routes of the receivers based on the depths that they run their routes at. So it turns into man to man, no matter what the route concept is. So I, I'm much more of a proponent of those types of zone defenses, whereas other defensive coordinators will run spot dropping defenses and Greg Williams did a lot of that, and Gross. It, it just doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't work just pick anymore. It used to work. There was a time. Yeah, it, there are times where <clears throat> there are times where you want to do that. If you're facing a really athletic quarterback, you want eyes on the quarterback to sure. to you know be able to account for him when well, he takes off. But. So let's ask that question. Look, if I'm let's say I'm Freddie Kitchens or John Dorsey, I'm somebody in the hiring room for the defensive coordinator. My question to you is, all right, fancy pants, you have you know, however many players on the defensive side of the ball that are up every week. I don't know how the breakdown is, but, you know, you've got 11 guys on the field, right? And here's your batch of players that you're going to have. How do you propose we use this batch of players to, A, stop a team like the New Orleans Saints, and, B, stop a team like the Baltimore Ravens? How are we stopping Drew Brees and Lamar Jackson with the same defense? And I, I don't mean personal, I don't mean schematically or personnel wise, but you're going to have the same 25 guys or whatever, and yep. you got and you got to be able to mix and match to do both things because there are guys like right. Drew Brees that are going to throw all over you, and there are guys like Lamar Jackson, and that game is still coming, where they are presenting totally different kinds of problems, and you yep. got to be able to deal with both. You saw what the Chargers did to them; that, at least for now, was remarkable. What's it going to look like when you get somebody who has both pieces? You need more talented, versatile athletes on your roster. You have to keep adding those guys. More guys like Jabril Peppers, for example, that can that can cover, but they can also play the run at a very high rate. Um, more defensive backs. I think having more speed on the field is always better, and it seems like Wilkes, I don't know if he learned that or not last year, but it's I, I'm encouraged by the fact that he was in sub packages so often, even though they were facing run at such a high rate. Um, we saw last week when the, the Chargers beat the Ravens, they employed four defensive linemen on the field with seven defensive backs and zero linebackers on every snap of the game except for two. I mean, that that's really forward thinking stuff. It's progressive. All that speed on the field really put a handle on Lamar Jackson and Baltimore's creative run game. It uh, gave them also a lot of trouble in the past game as well, not only because of Lamar Jackson and also because of the, the offensive coordinate, coordinator's lack of commitment to passing the ball, but also just because all that speed on the field and all these players that can defend the run and pass, it, it's tough to pass against those types of teams. So I think continuing to add to talented defensive backs that can cover at corner and safety, I think those are both positions that they absolutely must keep addressing. I like what they've done at corner. I like Denzel Ward. I like I like what Kerry can do covering the slot specifically. I think he did have some better games as the season went on covering outside. Um, Terrence Mitchell is a, a very good player, and and also if they keep if they bring back EJ Gaines, I think he he did a great job this year. He's probably actually the second best of the group in my opinion when he was healthy. Um, so I like the cornerback group. I just think that you have to add another player because you you never know when you're going to need corners. You should be playing three or four of them on the field at all times for the most part. Um, and you just, you need a lot of those guys that can play. We saw in the Kansas city game that they got all the way down to their fifth corner or sixth corner, I think in that game. And that's, it's really rough. And I, and I don't mean to forget body Calhoun. I, I think at this point, I just view him as more of a safety type player, which is the way that they were using him. Yeah. I like him better that way too. I, you know, I think when he's reacting, he's a better player. Um, mm -hmm. what <clears throat> the, the corner position to me, I'm not at all worried about Ward. Some people have like health concerns. I mean, you got to be worried, but whatever, that's part of the analysis. It's, it's football guys get hurt. Guys have, it doesn't really matter what the injury is. So 
with with the corner position, it's one of those ones where I definitely come from the school of Mangini on this. You can never have too many, and you should always be drafting the best one you can get at a real good value spot. Um, I wouldn't even be totally opposed to drafting one if you felt like you got the right one at 17. Uh, I would love to have one of the great defensive linemen, but to me, that, that 17 spot, at least if I'm early handicapping it, in my mind, it's either a defensive lineman and probably an inside defensive lineman, a tackle of some kind, like you said, a three technique, or it's another corner. Mm-hmm. I think you could take an edge rusher there too. Cause like I was saying with Ogba, he really hasn't gotten to the point where I would be worried about upgrading over him. I mean, he's been such an enigma so much of his career that I, I really, I would prefer him in a depth role. Yeah. I, I don't think disagree someone, with that. Yeah, someone will probably overpay him in free agency after this season. He's going to be a free agent and I don't see them extending him unless he really ups his game in his fourth, fourth year of his contract. But yeah, I, I could definitely see edge rusher, uh, a three technique or a corner. And I know that people will say tackle. I don't think that the top tackle is probably going to be there at 17. So I, I you don't know really why see that. I'm not doing it. Nobody touched Baker Mayfield for half a season. And last right. year at number 17, the chargers got Derwin James. Yep. Can I get Derwin James real quick? I'll have three oh, safeties out there. Just fine. That's fine with me. <laughs> yep. I'm all in on that. No doubt. Um, and then people have mentioned linebacker. I think the linebacker is a pretty big need next to Schobert. Um, I think Collins and Kirksey regressed significantly being coached by the Williamses between Greg and his son, who was a position coach. Um, they were completely different players the past two years than they were before that. So you can't really, you can't disagree with that. It's just fact. They were in, in the wrong position as far as run fits and also in coverage way too often. Um, taking advantage of sometimes it made other guys have to move out of position too, because they would be in the wrong spot and guys would have to try to overcompensate for their mistakes. So I'm hopeful that with a coaching change, those guys will improve. And I really think they missed Michael Kendricks this year. I mean that you can't even argue with that, that Michael Kendricks, that whole thing, he probably him and Schobert would have been the best two linebackers on the roster. And there's no question based on how he was playing in the preseason. They lost all but kinds yeah. of investment advice early in the season between him and Nassib. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, I, I probably wouldn't take a linebacker with the first first round pick. I just don't think it's as valuable of a position as some of these other positions we're talking about. It doesn't impact winning the same way unless you find a truly transcendent special talent. And I don't really buy that still. I don't I just don't see it happening. So I wouldn't probably go that route. I think I'd much I'd much lean toward uh, a free agent, a trade, or a mid-round pick for that linebacker. Hopefully they can find someone that route and coach up Kirksey because I don't think they're going to get out of his contract. And hopefully Schobert and Kirksey, you know, hopefully they can improve a ton. Also with the defensive line, hopefully in front of them improving as well because as I already said, they need depth and starters on the defensive line. Yeah, I think that's all right. You know, and and – it's freaking me out because I have not felt this way in my adulthood, but I go into 2019 and I'm thinking, I mean, look, you need to see how everything plays out free agency wise and draft wise. But at least as I sit here, based on everything I saw this year, I got to tell you, I think there's a pretty good chance the Browns go into the 2019 NFL season as the Vegas favorite to win the AFC North. I don't think that's crazy at all. I mean, quarterback wise, Look, I've seen, I feel like I've seen a lot of quarterbacks. I haven't seen a lot of quarterbacks do what Baker Mayfield just did as a rookie, and obviously nobody had done a couple of the things he did as a rookie. Um, part of that is certainly attributable to the way the game is now, and you're going to just, by nature, throw more touchdown passes. That's part of it. But there's no way around that ain't nobody did as many as Baker did in 13 starts. That was Peyton Manning and Russell Wilson's record, and they both started 16 games. And... Russ wasn't that long ago. I mean, Peyton, Peyton is why all these numbers are different, frankly. Um, but, man, what I saw from Baker Mayfield sure leads me to believe that this team can win every game it plays, in theory. So when you've got that, you sure better be pouring resources into your defense while you can, especially – I mean, look, the bottom line is your Super Bowl window is open. That's what I mean to say here. It's open now. You've got the quarterback – and you have a shit ton of money and resources to pour into having a really good defense. 
those are the two things you need. If you have a quarterback and you have a really good defense, you're going to the playoffs. You're going to the playoffs, period. You're winning 10 games and you're going to the playoffs. So that, and I hesitate to say this, my expectations for 2019 are 10 wins in a playoff berth. Yep. With you 100% on that. I think the, the window, the Super Bowl window, most realistically is now until 2021. After that, they're going to have to re-sign Baker Mayfield. Which they're going to have to do at a really yeah. big number, which is fine. It'll probably be the new record. Right. Probably will be at the time, unless he takes less, which you're, you're never going to count on that. But. Yeah, he and Mahomes and Watson and all these guys are going to get so much money, it's going to look ridiculous to the average fan, and I don't even care. You, you can pay Kirk Cousins that money, or you can pay Baker Mayfield that money. I'm going to pay Baker Mayfield all the money instead of Kirk Cousins most of the money. That's mm-hmm. the way I feel about it. Yep. yep. And then from there, it comes to tough decisions on the rest of the roster. Some of those talented young guys that you've drafted, well, you're going to have to let them go in free agency. Like you got to recycle um, and replace. Yeah. You get comp- compensatory picks for them, and then you've got to draft other talented guys. And you got to have good that- coaches who can adapt to new personnel, and you're going to have to hire new coaches once Develop- the good coaches get pilfered. And guess what? the New England Patriots have won 11 straight or whatever it is, division titles. And that's how you do that. And yes, that is what I'm shooting for. I'm not trying to be the Bills and win one every 15 years. Go win 10 in a row. You've got the quarterback for it. Yep. Amen. Go Browns. And with that, we'll call it good talking to you, buddy. Yeah, you too, man. It's always awesome. I'm glad we could put this together. Word. All right, folks, that was Brendan Leister at Brendan Leister. You can find me, Ryan Burns, at FTBL Sickness on Twitter. You can find the show at the Browns Note Podcast. Just a couple of final notes. Mentioned it earlier, but, uh, boy, that Mahomes kid looks all right. Boy, some of those guys Sashi drafted that some of y'all hated for a long time look all right. How does Mayfield and Njoku and Peppers look to you? All pretty good. All pretty good. We're not going back over the wars, though. Hugh Jackson, how'd that work out for the defenders? Anyway, enough victory laps. We shall speak no more of them. We welcome you back with open arms, as we hope you will us. One final thought, just as we close here today. Ozzie Newsom retiring. That was, uh, that was crazy to see, just because I grew up, Ozzie was my guy growing up. I mean... Certainly my favorite offensive player on the team until the Bernie Kosar years um, and into the Bernie Kosar years, frankly. I mean, by the time I had anybody else, Ozzie was basically done. And then the pain of him going to Baltimore and turning that place into a Super Bowl champion twice over and a constant contender and a constant kicker of our ass was less than totally delightful. But I think we all have to recognize Ozzie. As, uh, as a lifelong Brown, whether he likes it or not, whether we like it or not, he's also a lifelong Raven. Um, but a fine career and uh, an icon for both franchises and pretty impressive uh, going into the Hall of Fame, you know, deservingly as both a player. And I assume someday they'll just add an executive stamp to his existing bust or something. But he's deserving in both categories, and that's a hell of a thing. Ozzie Newsom, done after all those years. Thought it deserved to mention here on the end of the Browns Note podcast. And with that, we'll leave you. We'll be back in short order. I don't know if they'll be weekly or not until we get closer to the draft, but we'll start having some more episodes here. Thank you all for sticking with us. Glad you're back. Glad we're back. Talk to you next time. Until then, woof. Woof.